morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Toronto Church. My name is Tar George. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time visiting with us, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, we are in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, looking at the gospel's implications on everyday life. Uh, we usually pride ourselves on being a fairly uh, family-friendly service, but every now and then the Bible prompts us with some mature subject matter. It wants us to think and uh, listen to which means that I have to speak on some fairly mature subject matter. And so if you're here and you have kids with you in the, in the audience, please know that you are most welcome to stay. Uh, we love that you're here, uh, but just thought that it would be helpful to give you that parental advisory. If you have your bulletins, you can flip it over or you can open your Bibles. We're going to read from Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, and to read for us is patience. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, patience. My son is almost two years old now, and one of the things I love to watch is his growing ability to imitate me as a father. When I laugh at something, he instinctively wants to laugh also. When he sees me eating with a fork, he wants to do the very same thing. When he sees me hugging my wife, he wants to get in on it too. Whether I'm reading a book or loading the dishwasher or playing with our dog, My son isn't determined to engage in all the same things that I do. He loves what I love, and he instinctively does what he sees me doing. Every now and then, however, I find that he develops some not-so-great behaviors from watching the other kids at daycare or learning new things on his own. We found ourselves dealing with temper tantrums, food fights, hitting, nose-picking, and screaming. And I'm told that this is just the beginning. You see, my son is trying to learn who I am and how he is to conduct himself as my child. And at the same time, he's also needing to learn, or rather unlearn, certain habits and behaviors that he has picked up 
either from his peers or by himself. And this is a great and complex task of parenthood. You know, as we come to our passage this morning, I think Paul illustrates a similar kind of family dynamic. He explains what it means for Christians to conduct themselves as children of God. Because like children, we are learning the positive behaviors and values of our Heavenly Father. While at the same time, we are also unlearning some of the negative behaviors and values of our culture and our fallen nature. And so in our text this morning, Paul calls us to imitate God and not the world. He reveals two things about our status as Christians that he believes should influence our conduct. Here are his two points. First, you are a child of love, so walk in that love. And second, you are a child of light, so walk in that light. You're a child of love, and you are a child of light. We'll look at each of these in the passage. Well, if you're just joining us, Paul has spent the first half of this book telling these Ephesians about the gospel. He has summarized how we have been forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and now adopted into God's new family through Jesus Christ. And this morning, Paul begins by exploring this family dynamic further. Look with me at the text. He says in verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's saying, if you are a Christian, this is who you now are. You are a member of God's family. You are a child whom he loves. And as a child of God, you are now growing and maturing into the likeness of your heavenly Father. God has given you new power now through his spirit to imitate him in the world as a child would with their natural parent. So, how are we to do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, he says, walk in love because that's what God in Christ did for you. In love, Christ gave himself up for you at the cross and showed you a pattern of life to follow. His love was self-giving and not self-seeking. So now imitate him in the way you conduct yourself in the world. Be a child of love and walk in that love. Now, here's where it starts to get a little strange. If you're reading the passage, you'll notice that there's a rather abrupt shift that happens in verse 3. Paul, out of nowhere, suddenly begins talking about all kinds of sexual sin, things like sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, sensuality, and crude joking. Like, what? (laughs) What's going on here? Well, commentators are puzzled about this shift because it seems almost like Paul is changing topics. But he's not. He's not. You see, Paul's instructions in verses 3 to 7 are all about what it really means to walk in love. He's expressing in the following verses what it means to practice true love, that is from God, in the midst of a culture that seems to profoundly devalue it. You see, what Paul highlights in verses 3 to 7 is a perversion and corruption of love. It is lust. It is lust. And what Paul begins to do in this section is to instruct us about the dangers of lust and its related practices. He calls us to live differently from our unbelieving neighbors. Now, let me pause there for a moment, because if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might find Paul's teachings on sex to be somewhat outdated. 
I think for many in our city, the ability to enjoy sexual pleasure however, whenever, and with whoever we want seems like the best possible way to live. I would imagine that that kind of behavior doesn't sound to you like sexual immorality at all. Perhaps that sounds like sexual freedom. It sounds like authenticity, empowerment, and enjoyment. And I would grant you that it does promise you all those things in the moment. But what has it cost our society? If we're really honest, performance in the bedroom now feels like a performance standard. We are more self-conscious about our sexual appearance and our sexual abilities than perhaps any other generation before us. The need to be and feel sexy is crippling people. Cosmetic surgery is one of the fastest growing industries in the world right now. Infidelity in our culture is at an all-time high. Refining trust and commitment is much harder to come by now in romantic relationships. Pornography is quantifiably destroying the lives of men and women. Sexual assault in our country is the highest that it's ever been. There are more children being trafficked right now for sex than there has ever been in the history of the world. So tell me, for all our sexual freedom, are we really and truly free? No. No, you see, this is what happens when human beings indulge every kind of sexual gratification without any godly restraint. So is it possible that what Paul describes here might just be more healthy, more free, and more good than what you presently see in the world? Could it be that the God who created sex actually has good rules and restrictions about our sexual practices so that you might experience real freedom and joy? Because this is precisely the point that Paul is trying to make about our sexual practices. Look at me in verse 3. Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Notice that Paul highlights three kinds of sexual practices that he believes to be incompatible with the Christian life. The first term is the Greek word pornea that is translated sexual immorality. In the New Testament, it refers to any kind of sexual act that occurs outside the context of a loving marriage between one man and one woman. It includes things like recreational sex, premarital sex, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, prostitution, or any other kind of illicit sexual acts. These are a range of sexual behaviors that Paul and other biblical authors seem to take very seriously. They want us to do the same. Now, the other two terms translated impurity and covetousness near are a little more ambiguous. They appear as both general terms and general sins and sexual sins in the Bible. However, the context here leads most scholars to believe that Paul is probably referring to sexual sin here also. You'll notice that he actually picks up the same theme again in verse 4 and onwards. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. He's showing us how lust expresses itself, not just in inappropriate sexual activity, but all through a person's thinking and speaking. As one scholar summarizes, Paul probably intends sexual immorality to refer to a person's behavior and actions. Impurity may refer to a person's speech and conduct related to sex. 
And covetousness probably refers to a person's thinking about sex, namely those secret desires that we might harbor to be with someone sexually. You see, the whole passage properly understood is about the effects and dangers of lust in the human heart. It is a systematic critique of the sexual behavior, speech, and thinking of our culture. It is the very opposite of what it means to walk in biblical love. It is to walk in lust. And it's here, I think, that we need to stop and ask, what is it about these things that makes Paul so very concerned about the well-being of the church? Why is sexual conduct such a big deal to him? You know, we don't know for sure, but it seems like these Christians were probably facing significant sexual temptation, just like many of us. If you read verses 3 to 7 carefully, you'll see that Paul both warns and admonishes these Christians about their sexual practices, meaning to say that these believers are either at risk of being tempted by sexual sin, or they are very actually and really engaging habitually in sexual sin. Whatever the case, it appears that these Christians are really struggling to obey God in areas of purity and personal holiness. And they're not alone, are they? Grace Toronto, I've been around here long enough to know that there are plenty of us who struggle with the kinds of sexual sin that Paul is describing here. It doesn't matter whether you are single, dating, or married. I know that you have wrestled with some or all of these same temptations. And many of us succumb to them regularly. Living out the gospel in this area of life is particularly hard. I know, I know. But Paul seems to think that it's also really necessary. In verses 3 to 4, he lists a number of behaviors that the Christian is not to engage with any longer, be it sex outside marriage, pornography, erotica, lust in your mind, or filthy language that degrades or objectifies people. In fact, he concludes in verse 7, do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with them. That is, don't engage in the same things that the world does. Why? It's because what you talk about, what you think about, and what you look at and listen to will undoubtedly affect you at some level. It will. These sexual practices have enormous power to turn us away from obedience to Jesus. And so we ought to abstain from them. We ought to repent of them and commit to resisting them with all the strength and power that God supplies to His children. Now, we're going to get into some practical application for that in the next section. But for now, I think Paul wants us to first understand the seriousness of these things and desire real, real change. Christian, I want you to hear that very clearly from this passage that you are a beloved child of God. And your heavenly Father loves you, and He wants what's best for you. And because He wants what's best for you, He has in love put certain fences around your and my sexual expression. And Paul claims that God has actually done that for our good. I remember growing up in the church and really struggling with this concept in my adolescent years. I saw my peers engage in all kinds of sexual activity, 
wild living, pornography, and crude joking. I found myself frustrated that I was bound to a faith that didn't allow me to express myself in all the ways that the culture said that I ought to and that I most wanted to. And so I settled for a half-hearted commitment to Jesus in this area of my life. I found myself functionally asking, what things could I get away with without completely compromising my faith? How close can I get to the fence without actually crossing it? Maybe you can relate to that this morning. Perhaps you found yourself also asking that same question about your own life and the things that tempt you on a regular basis. You see, looking back now, I realize that I was always asking the wrong question. Because in all those years, I never stopped to ask, why is the fence actually there? Why is the fence actually there? You see, fences do two things. They restrict and they protect. And sometimes, and oftentimes, dare I say, when we see a fence in the Christian faith, we functionally believe that it must be there to restrict and hinder me. That is my freedom, my pleasure, my expression, and my joy. But what if we actually have it all wrong? Is it possible that the fence that you think is there to restrict your pleasure is actually there to protect your pleasure? Because that's what Paul is saying here. I think we can all appreciate that the most majestic and beautiful lookout points on the planet all have strong guardrails. A good fence allows you to enjoy the beauty that is in front of you and really relish the experience. Only fools and thrill-seekers look to cross it, and they do so at their own peril. You see, this is the point that Paul is trying to make here. Because in verses 5 to 6, Paul describes the ultimate consequence for the person who chooses to live in this kind of reckless way. Look with me at the text. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why is he telling them these things? I think it's because he wants them to take it seriously. Look, he emphasizes that they know these things and they've been taught these things. But their knowledge has simply not translated into stronger obedience, deeper repentance, and a real correction for change in this area of life. Rather, they have allowed themselves to have a pretty casual approach to sexual sin. And Paul is reminding them, as I think he is reminding us, that that's not going to fly. You see, the question Paul wants us to consider this morning is really this. Who are you actually imitating with your life? Who are you imitating with your life? Because if we find ourselves consistently practicing these behaviors, being rebellious as children and refusing God's correction, then we are not, in fact, walking in love. We show by our conduct that we are not actually imitating God at all. We are instead imitating the world. 
And in verses 5 to 6, Paul describes the judgment that will ultimately come upon such people who turn away from God and choose to persist in their sin. He draws a stark contrast between those who are beloved children, verse 1, and those who are sons of disobedience, verse 6. One receives an inheritance from God because he or she is committed to walking in love, while the other receives wrath because he or she is committed to walking in lust. Now, I want to be clear, this is not to say that if you've fallen into any of these sins as a Christian that Paul is pronouncing absolute judgment on you. No, not at all. Paul knows all too well, I think, that true Christians struggle mightily with sexual temptation. I mean, if that weren't the case, he would see no need to write these things to us and exhort us to live differently. But he does. Paul knows, I think, that sin is an ever-present reality this side of heaven. There's grace for the sinner, and there is forgiveness. But you see, what separates a child of God from a child of disobedience is that desire to consistently repent of sin, hate it all the more, and endeavor to live after God with true and renewed conscience. Do you follow me? You understand that when Jesus met the woman caught in adultery, he forgave her freely, freely, no questions asked. But in the same breath, he also said to her these same words, go now and sin no more. Go now and sin no more. Grace Strano, I think this teaching is really worth our attention. Paul is adamant that there is zero compatibility between the love of God and the lusts of the world. He is saying in no uncertain terms that these values and practices are not becoming of a child of God. So take no part in them any longer. You are a child of love, so walk in that love. This is Paul's first point. You know, now secondly, Paul tells us that we are also children of light. He explains in verse 8 the reality of what has taken place in the gospel. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. He's reminding us that we once lived like everybody else in the world. We were in darkness. But God has so saved and redeemed the Christian that he or she is now in the light. In fact, I don't know if you notice, Paul says the Christian now is light. The Christian now is light in the Lord. Therefore, we must now walk as children of light. How do we do that? Well, Paul here provides an interesting analogy here for how the light of God affects us and others. As sunlight helps a tree grow and bear fruit, so too does God's light yield spiritual fruit, both in our lives and in the world around us. Look with me at the text. You'll notice that in verses 8 to 13 that God's light in our lives accomplishes two purposes. First, it produces and cultivates fruitful things for God, verses 8 to 10. And second, it exposes and transforms unfruitful things for God, verses 11 to 13. We'll look at each of these in turn. In verses 8 to 9, Paul writes, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light, the fruit of the light, is found in all that is good and right and true. He's saying that the gospel's light produces good fruit in our lives, good fruit things that are good, right, and true. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that 
Paul doesn't really explain here what those things are. Did you ever notice that? Like he spent an enormous amount of time telling us what we are not to do. And you would think that he might spend at least as much time telling us in positive terms what we are to do. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Rather, all we are left with is this vague exhortation in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word translated discern here is the Greek word dokimazo. It's a word that means to consider, examine, and approve. In other words, he's not saying to you, go now and just figure out for yourself what pleases God. No, not at all. Rather, he's saying, go now and consider afresh what God has already told you is pleasing to him. He's asking us to think deeply about our sexual practices on the basis of what God has already revealed to us in his word. So, what has God revealed to us that really pleases him in this area of life? I want to give you a few implications from the Bible that might pertain to your particular stage of life, whether you are single or married. If you are unmarried right now, God calls you to honor him in that stage of life. It means that in your behavior, you are called to abstain from any and all sexual activity with another person. God has in his wisdom intended sex for marriage, and he asks you to respect that in your behavior, thinking, and conduct. Seek marriage if it's your desire, or don't if you don't feel like that's right for you. But whatever you do, you must be willing to submit to God's word in this area of your life. And if you are in a dating relationship or you are engaged, treat that as a gift. Don't mess around. Don't do it. You are still unmarried, so you ought not to engage like a married couple. That means you ought not to be sleeping together. You ought not to be living together. And you ought not to be compromising each other in the ways you touch, think, or talk. And look, I do enough premarital counseling at this church to know that sometimes well-intentioned boundaries do get crossed. But the Bible still calls you to have good boundaries. And so I'd ask you to take that seriously because it matters to God. If you've fallen into any of the sexual sins that Paul has described today, know that there is grace for you. Confess your sins to God and repent of them earnestly. He will forgive you. He will forgive you. Forget what's behind and commit to pursuing holiness now. That's what Paul is saying. And if you're struggling with pornography, sexual addictions, or same-sex attraction, there is help for you. Talk to someone on staff. Find trusted brothers and sisters in the church to encourage you, pray for you, and hold you accountable to living the Christian life. You're not alone. We love you, and we care for you we care that you run the Christian race well. There's prayer available for you after the service with men and women who would be delighted to listen to you and pray with you. Let's help each other walk, truly walk in love and light. Finally, if you are married right now, God calls you to honor him in that stage of life also. It means that you also ought to develop a habit of pursuing your spouse and growing your physical, emotional, and spiritual attraction for each other. 
And when I say that, I'm not saying that you should be more or less sexually active as a couple. That's for you to decide. But I am saying that your marriage is the proper place to express attraction and desire, and nowhere else, nowhere else. So prioritize that relationship, maybe more deeply than you have in recent weeks or months. If you feel less attracted to your spouse, or less attractive to your spouse than when you first got married. It might be worthwhile to have a conversation about that as a couple. I wanna tell you that your desire for your spouse isn't just a feeling, and you ought not to treat it that way. Rather, your desire for your spouse is a choice, and one that God asks you to make in your home every day, every single day. I think Paul would tell us that there are ways that we can be thinking, speaking, and treating our partners that helps nurture and grow our desire for them. As there are also surely ways that we can be thinking, speaking, and treating our partners that harms and weakens our desire for them. So be diligent about these things as a couple. And listen, there are certainly stages in married life where work, family, and other commitments rob us of our desire for each other. I know that as well as anyone. The Lord wants us to come together and be fully committed to each other, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So let's find a way to do that. In a few weeks, Pastor Kingsley will be speaking to us more about marriage. But for now, take some time to talk about these things as a couple. By all means, seek help if you need to. Find ways to develop your attraction for each other and even small, everyday things. Learn to desire your spouse the way you did at first. Pray about it as a couple and pursue it together for the good of your marriage. Because I think that's ultimately how God's life produces fruitful things for God. Finally, Paul also identifies that God's light exposes and transforms unfruitful things for God. Verses 11 to 13. He writes, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they, that is the culture, do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. What is he saying here? I think Paul is talking about the transformative power of the gospel when it is lived out effectively in the world. When Christians imitate God and live as children of light, they display this God-given ability to expose darkness in the world and even transform it. He's saying that the way that you and I live before our unbelieving neighbors has tremendous power, tremendous power to convict the world that it desperately needs the Jesus whom we follow. In other words, our sexual ethics and practices are meant to expose to the world what is wrong and reveal to the world what is good, right, and true. And that is a massive calling. That is a massive calling. But it can be done. It can be done because God's love and light have power. You need to know that the city of Ephesus was one of the largest and most important cities in the ancient world. It was a city known for its booming trade, wealth, prestige, and revelry. It had the foremost thinkers, scholars, leaders, and thrill-seekers. It was known for its diversity, consumerism, 
idol worship, and promiscuity. In short, it was a city just like ours, with enormous influence. The city itself was home to the Temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And it was this association with fertility that the people so emphasized in their worship. There would be regular festivals held to celebrate eroticism, orgies, cult prostitution, and all kinds of sexual misconduct. You know, we may think of our society now as an over-sexualized culture. You have to know that Ephesus was no different. The sexual practices that Paul describes here were deeply ingrained in the culture of their city. And yet, and yet, the gospel arrived and it changed everything. It changed everything. Scholars unanimously agree that it wasn't good pastors and missionaries, but simple, ordinary Christians living out the faith and their sexual ethics that persuaded people that the gospel was better. Their light exposed and helped transform the culture that they were part of. And your light, Christian, is meant to do the very same thing. And so I want to ask you this. What if God used your singleness to show the world that the gospel is more satisfying than porn, lust, and one-night stands? What if God used your marriage to show the world that the gospel is better than divorce, infidelity, and cohabitation? What if through the ways you act, think, and talk about sex, you show people a supreme power in Jesus to live differently? and desire something more beautiful and more worthy than anything this world can offer. Because that's how powerful and transformative the gospel actually is. Paul concludes our passage in verse 14. He quotes something that we think may have been a hymn or creed that was used in worship. He writes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What's he saying here? Well, I think he's reminding these believers of their resurrection power. Resurrection power. He's reiterating that everything he's mentioned in this passage is within our ability to do because of what Christ has done on our behalf. You'll notice that he opens the passage by describing what Christ has done through his death, verse 2. And now he closes the passage by describing what Christ has done for us through his resurrection. You see, from start to finish, it is the work of Jesus that enables you and I to live this powerful new life. It is through His life, death, and resurrection that we have the forgiveness of our sins and a renewed status as God's children when we believe and trust in Him by faith. How do I know that? It's because Jesus was the true child of God who imitated His Father. He walked in love because he himself manifested God's love. And he walked in light because he himself was the light. The Apostle John, writing in the first chapter of his gospel, says this, that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. And that is the marvelous news of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you, maybe for the first time, to put your trust and faith in this Jesus. 
I want you to know that in Christ there's more love, more light, and more meaning available to you than all the sexual pleasures that this world has to offer. That's a big claim to make, I know. But I'm convinced that the God who made sexual expression and made you as a sexual being knows better than anyone what you most long for in your soul. Come talk to us after the service, and we'd love to help you consider what the gospel might mean for your life. For the Christian here, Paul wants you to know that you are a child of God. Through his spirit that is at work in you, God has equipped you with everything necessary to live the Christian life well. You have power from God to live a radically different life and put away your sexual sin. So put it away and be rid of it. Be rid of it. To you, Paul gives this hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul reminds you that you have been summoned by God's call to awaken from spiritual death and to rise to new life in Christ. Men and women, God has not raised you from the dead just so you could go back to lying in the dirt. You are seen and you are loved. You are forgiven and you are not to go back to your sin any longer. The power and ability of the gospel has been given to you in Jesus Christ. But you must exercise that power. You must strain every faith muscle in your body and in the presence of Jesus Christ, you are commanded to get up. So now rise and get up. You are a child of love, so walk in that love. And you are a child of light, so walk in that light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel message that we are children of love and that we are children of light. We ask that you would help us to walk in love and light in the midst of a culture that is filled with darkness. We ask that you would give us, oh Lord, we need your mercy. We need so much of your Spirit's power to live the Christian life well and to leave behind our sin. Would you help us to arise and get up and walk in the ways that you have called us to? We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ordinarily we have some time for Q&A, but I've been told that because our service is overrunning that we we don't have time for that today. But um, if you do have some questions or you'd like some prayer or there's anything that you'd like to process, uh, please know that I'm available afterwards and we'd be happy to speak with you. You can also email me at tarek at gracetoronto.ca. But for now, would would you rise if you can for our song of response?